Good afternoon. This is Stephen McCarthy from the McCarthy Project, and we are coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, today's show, we are going to be discuss, discussing a new book uh, wrote by David Epstein uh, called The Sports Gene. And um, it leads to a whole plethora of different uh, thoughts related to science versus talent versus practice and all these really cool questions about success in athletics. And so I am honored uh, to have David on the show today uh, to discuss his book and kind of the future, you know, of this idea that science does play a very large role, you know, in success in, in high-end athletics. How are you doing today, David? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. But before we go into the kind of the the meat and potatoes, uh, it is quite amazing and to think about um, the subjects and the breadth that you've uh, researched. You're an investigative journalist uh, from Sports Illustrated, and um, anybody that just types uh, David's name in, he'll pull up a resume that I am quite amazed uh, that, I mean, we've got like articles about Tyson Gay, you know, and, and A-Rod and just a whole bunch of cool stuff. So if anybody would like to get his bio, all I'm going to say is graduate from Columbia, you know, and um, just amazing stuff. Almost, I'm not even going to go there as far as the length of the uh, the bio. But anyways, David, you've just recently released a book called The yeah. Sports Gene. And... Kind of give us your ideas on what your original motive for writing the book. Well, it, it started, it sort of came out of my own questions that, that emerged from my own sports experience, starting really in high school, where I uh, grew up just outside of Chicago um, in Evanston, Illinois. And in the 1980s, Evanston had this sort of mini Jamaican diaspora. And so uh, Jamaicans like track and field. And so we had this, it was a very popular sport at my school. And so I got interested in track. And and we basically would uh, would destroy everybody in, in most of the races, and uh, we won. You know, I think we were in the midst of like 26 straight conference titles. And I just sort of started to wonder, you know, all these guys coming from this tiny island, uh, what's going on over there? You know, and then I move on to to run in college, and uh, there I moved up in distance to run longer distances, and I'm running against Kenyan athletes and and learning that not only are they Kenyan, they come from one minority tribe in a tiny part of Kenya, mostly. And I just started to wonder, you know, what was going on in these places? And it made me wonder about athletic development and, and genetics. And then, um, you know, on, on sort of a sad note, that one of my my former Jamaican training partners from high school had dropped dead um, after a race and uh, turned out to be due to uh, genetic disease. And, and that sort of, all those issues got me really interested in in learning what I could about the interplay of genetics and athletic skill. See, and the funny thing is, and one of the things that struck me as I was reading your bio uh, is that you actually have a background uh, in the world of environmentalism and science as it relates to life. You know, give us a little yeah. bit of a feel for where your viewpoints, you know, kind of sit there as we go into the book. Well, yeah. So my my academic background, and largely because I just I knew I liked science, but I didn't really know what I should study when I came to college. And there were these great yes. travel opportunities if you were a geology student. And so, yes. so I sort of followed that. And I ended up even, you know, going, starting grad school and going through my master's. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 and I loved that work. I wanted something that was more 
involved with people, basically. You know, my, gotcha. my master's research that was a little divorced, you know, it was focused on animate objects, basically. Um, and so I, I saw, and I, and I really like writing, and I saw becoming a science writer and, and particularly writing about science and sports as a way to really merge my interests um, in athleticism and in science and sort of to look at science that actually uh, has a more sort of visceral and immediate meaning for people. See, and that's what's cool about sport, you know, and I think the hope is, you know, that you really can create a group and then you can start to really research and, and find out and dig into philosophy. I think so much, I mean, just a commentary on society as a whole is that they just seem to think that, well, I'm a basketball player and that's about all you got. But you really can apply a deep level of science and philosophy to the world of sport and it can be very enlightening in that sense as well. I mean, no, in, in fact, I would go beyond that even to say not only can it be, but that there are aspects of sports, some of which I discuss in the book, whether that's related to people's ethnic background or to uh, gender or to biological diversity or to cheating, that are issues that are very, very difficult for to have widespread public discussion in most, almost any other context other than sports, maybe difficult even in sports. But I think ranging from ethical discussions to discussions about race and gender, sports sometimes gives a platform that allows us to discuss things that are very difficult, if not impossible, um, in, in other segments of, of life. All righty. So let's move over uh, more directly into uh, uh, your book. Now, just to give everybody the full title, it's The Sports Gene, What Makes a Perfect Athlete? And so... In that respect, we talked a little about the motive. Kind of give us the top two or three main – I shouldn't even say that because there's so much room for discussion here. But what are your two, three things that you'd like to convey with the book? Well, so if I had to put it in a nutshell generally, I'd say, uh, you know, having taken on my greatest questions in this book about uh, <laughs> athleticism, that some of the things that people think um, – are totally genetically based skills like the the ability of a major league hitter to respond to a hundred mile per hour fastball turn out to have to be learned skills, and others uh, that at least I would have thought were totally acts of will like the compulsive drive to train turn out to have really important uh, genetic components. So I think going through the book, a lot of it is looking at what science says compared to our intuition about the interplay of nature and nurture in sports. And see, this is the discussion to me is that you sit there, and I'm going to kind of give a little bit, but they, you always hear like the announcers, you know, when they're talking about imposing their will, you know, it's like this big dominant thought, you know, that they're imposing their will. Not just you don't have to have a will to win, but sometimes that's overplayed, whereas, dude, you're 6'10", you know what I mean? You're a basketball player. Of course you're going <laughs> to impose your will. You're 6'10", you know, it really – creates this very interesting conversation that you can't just put, oh, everybody's this way or everybody's that way, correct? That's absolutely correct. I mean, there's that and and getting to that. You know, obviously height, and, and this is to deviate just a little bit, but height is a very obvious, very easy to measure trait with your eyeball, yes. right? And, and so the sort of move in other books about um, sporting expertise in the last couple of years have been toward an all-nurture perspective. And the exception that they make is for height, usually saying, well, okay, except height doesn't count. But the only reason <laughs> that exception is made is because it's so easy to measure. There are other things like the length of your Achilles tendon or the surface area of your lungs that are no less important 
uh, for particular sports, they're just more difficult to measure. So they, uh, some other writers haven't always acknowledged them, but uh, you know, now we're finding some of the genes that are important to those things. So I think it will be more difficult to sort of um, only restrict and say, well, except for height, it's all practice. Exactly. It's kind of like, honestly, when you think, I come out of a training background, like a strength coach background, and one of the things that we started our company around was the uh, the core uh, training, the physio ball, mm-hmm. the idea that uh, the body had a, a an absolute optimal position and everything, and once the body gets there, you'll magically be able to perform at a higher level. Um, and I'll just use like LeBron James as an example. The dude... Um, looks amazing, can do anything, but when you look at his feet, he's almost like uh, walking like Ronald McDonald. Well, that is not the optimum position, but why is he able to produce so much power? Yeah, well, LeBron, I mean, first of all, you're looking at a guy who is like an outlier by any stretch of the word. Yes. Right? So there, even even developmentally. Um, So one one of the things when I look at LeBron – I kind of think he's what you get when you have the guy who has the most raw athletic ability and you combine him with the guy with the best sports-specific skills, which is why we we basically never see someone like that. <laughs> uh, and and I don't know exactly why he is able to produce exactly that much power. I know he has long limbs compared to his even compared to his sizable body length. We know that's good for jumping because it allows you to accelerate your lower limb faster when you're looking for takeoff. And when I've actually slowed down video of him... Um, looking at him kind of going full court to dunk, he has an approach in the last couple of steps that look exactly like what long jumpers do, where he takes those long strides and then yes. really transfers his kinetic energy really well. I've, it's like you could superimpose him on like a medalist long jumper. And I don't know if that's something that comes to him intuitively or he's had a lot of attempts to try uh, running full court and dunking, but my guess is both. <laughs> Because not all the other guys look like that. When they they'll, they'll mince their steps in a different way. They won't transfer the power the same way. But I, I literally, I've looked at him compared to like uh, Olympic long jumpers running, and and his final couple steps, you could put them right on the track. It's interesting because let's come into a different sport because I could easily move this whole thing down basketball because that's kind of my baby, if you will. <laughs> but in the book, you talk about Jenny Finch. Could you kind of share that story? You know, about Jenny Finch and A-Rod and, and yeah. Barry Bonds and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, the, the first chapter is um, basically about a skill that I thought was mostly genetic that I turned out to be wrong. So Jenny Finch, the softball pitcher, Olympic gold medalist for the U.S. team in 2004, and she had been invited to as like a ceremonial coach to an exhibition, like a charity softball game of Major League Baseball players. And they figured they were going to have some fun with her, you know, take some batting practice, knock a couple softballs around, um, and so some of the guys like Albert Pujols and Mike Piazza decided to face Jenny Finch. And her the, the ball takes the same amount of time to get from her softball mound. She throws in about the mid-60s as the pitches that they face all the time in Major League Baseball. So they figured it would be no problem because they thought, like I did, that they have really fast reflexes. But it turns out they don't, and they couldn't even touch. Uh, they couldn't even hit foul balls off Jenny Finch. So Barry Bond saw her in front of a bunch of cameras at the All-Star game, and he's saying, like, he's basically – sort of hitting on her, you know, saying like, girl, you can call me any time, like, we'll do this, you know, uh, you, you can you can throw your pitches, but you better watch out because I'll hit you with a line drive. And so she goes and visits him, and he can't even hit a foul ball. He's getting mad. He asks that the cameras, like, not be, not be filming him. And it turns out that Major League Baseball players have no faster reaction speed than uh, 
doctors, teachers, lawyers, I scored faster than Albert Pujols on a visual reaction time test. Right? So we just don't have a biological system that allows us to track a ball when its angular position is changing at that great a speed as it gets close to you. It, it, the advice to keep your eye on the ball is nonsense. You can't do it. It takes a fifth <laughs> of a second, which is half the flight time of the ball, to even initiate muscular action. So the only way the hitters accomplish what they do is by learning perceptual cues, like the movement of a pitcher's shoulder before the throw, the flicker, which is the flashing pattern of the seams make when the ball rotates right when it's out of the hand, that allows them to decide way earlier uh, in the pitch where they're going to swing. But when they face someone with an unusual shoulder, shoulder motion and an unusual spin of the ball, they're totally stripped of those skills they've learned. All right, because the inevitable question comes, how do you apply what you know? Because this is – how do you teach it? Because, I mean, this yeah. is great information. It's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Albert Pujols is better at that. Well, I yeah. kind of would like to have that skill. Is it teachable? Yeah. So here's, here's what the science shows is that, yes, it's teachable, but that people don't progress at the same rate with it, even if they're doing the exact same training. So there's a trainability effect. Some people respond to the training more quickly, but one way but, – but everyone should be taught the right way, first of all, right? So some of this science actually came out of – um, scientists who work first with cricket batsmen, uh, yep. and they have now basically moved away from their version of pitching machines, realizing that it doesn't teach the anticipatory cues that you actually need for hitting. Um, so you really need to face live pitching, and you really need to face live pitching of both hands, right-handed and left-handed, because the anticipatory cues are a little bit different. Um, so there are certain things that you can apply to practice, and then just m making sure that you're taking a lot of live hitting practice, and, and the sort of, I guess, disappointing part of it is that once you've learned those anticipatory skills, which, which everyone does to some extent, then you rely, you know, the better your visual acuity is, um, the better you're going to be overall, and that, that's, a, that's kind of out of your control. Yes. Now, the, the, the other question that I have is the idea of cross-training. You know, mm -hmm. so much is made of young people in specializing early you know what I mean, and really attempting to um, you know, play one sport at the age of yeah. eight and then play that all the way through. But so many uh, strength coaches and, and coaches really are looking for the multi-sport athlete. How do you reconcile that with, uh, with your research? Well, I can tell you, so sort of the popularity of the so-called 10,000-hour rule has led to increasing hyper-specialization of, yep. of kids. And what the science says, uh, you know, and there needs to be more, but it says that for some sports like gymnastics and golf, there there is some evidence that early hyper-specialization can pay off. Um, gymnastics, that evidence is the most strong. Um, but for the other sports, the so-called what scientists will call the CGS sports, which means they're measured in centimeters, grams, and seconds. Um, and, you know, so running, swimming, jumping, throwing, all those kinds of things. Uh the pattern that the elites usually follow in those sports is actually um, a, what, what the scientists call a sampling period, up through about age 12, where they try all kinds of different sports. They are exposed to their eventual sport that they're, they're going to specialize in. They develop a range of different skills, um, a range of, of different you know, environments for body awareness, multiple different attacking sports, you know, so that could mean soccer and basketball and hockey or something like that. And then they specialize in the mid-teen years. And that's the pattern the elites follow in most of those sports, like a Steve Nash, who was, um, who is, always has said that soccer was his first love and that he didn't get his first basketball until he was 13. You know, And obviously that didn't inhibit his ability to develop those skills ultimately.
Yes, because this is the other thing, too, is that there's actually some stuff coming out of the Soviet Union from like the 60s and 70s. I don't exactly remember the exact time, but they actually did some research on swimmers and said that they found that if they delayed that specialization, just like you said, that they actually spent more time on the national team than if they specialized early uh, and and then allowed it to happen. It was interesting. So exactly what you're saying is actually proven in the world of swimming, that you delay your specialization for that same reason. The Australian Institute of Sport has found that same thing in a range of sports, too. Okay. And that the athletes who, who sampled then also made the national teams more quickly when they turned to that. And and um, the in sprinting, there's definitely increasing evidence that early – Early training that's too hard and specific can cause yep. sort of like a neurological adaptation to a speed that an athlete gets stuck at, basically. Yep. And so that while you want to you want to have some training, not too much too early. And I can tell you, I don't think the Jamaican uh, you know youth athletes are following that advice because they know the science. But that's if you go to a Jamaican high school, which I did, the training yep. they do compared to equivalent age in an American high school is for the underclassmen is so light. They ramp it up as upperclassmen. But it's it's way lighter than what you would see at an American high school, and they're doing quite a bit better than us, particularly for that. <laughs> just a shade, you know, not too just much, a, just but a just bit, a shade. Just a bit. <laughs> three million, the island of two point eight million people is just kicking our tail a little bit. Because you could even go, I mean, you could bring this to okay, why are Argentinians and Brazilians better at soccer? I mean, you could bring this to, I mean, every it seems like every country almost has their sport, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and and Brazil. I know one of the really interesting things with Brazil, who although they they haven't been, you know, quite as good lately, at least in the World Cup as they had before, but they still produce a huge portion of the best players. They have they have this game uh, called futsal, where they they play like in sort of it's like soccer but in enclosed space. So it it still uses foot skills, but it's like almost like you know playing in like your kitchen, and so it, it's it's a very different they. You know, mostly for fun, but they get they get a lot of t- more touches on the ball, and it's kind of different than the ultimate sport. And I, I kind of think that that's like a great, great sort of developmental sport for um, Brazilian soccer. But the countries that don't have as many people as Brazil to call their soccer pros from, like uh, the Netherlands, which made the World Cup final in the last World Cup and has a small population, they actually do apply the sports science where in the developmental pipeline they have scientists tracking kids for certain traits like speed and quickness, you know, also looking at what what a kid's uh, biological age is, not just their chronological age, to make sure they aren't weeding out kids who just haven't hit their growth spurt yet um, and that sort of thing. So when you have a smaller population, I think you need to apply the sports science more because you can't afford to lose as many people. Agreed completely. All right, we're going to go to a quick break, and we'll be back uh, after to continue our discussion, uh, discussion with David Epstein. <laughs> 